so I did start to get a sense through this process over years that involuntary psychiatric interventions are much more common than people yes. realize. They mm-hmm. affect a much wider spectrum of people than many of us realize. This is definitely something I think is clearly on the rise, and that is voluntary patients being converted rapidly into involuntary patients, where people are actively seeking help, and then if they disagree at all, put up any kind of resistance, they're quickly converted to involuntary patients. But then we look at something in a real-world context, like what happens after people are in a psychiatric hospital. Yes, we see suicide rates that go up 100 times for people who had no suicidal ideation before, 200 times higher suicide rates if they actually went in with suicidal feelings. So yeah, based on that evidence, we can only conclude that being put in a psychiatric hospital, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, is an extremely dangerous thing to do to somebody. This is consistent in the research. Even suicide researchers know this and we'll talk about it, but then they just kind of dismiss it or they say, well, we don't really know what that means. And it's true. We don't, we can't prove cause and effect here, but anyone who's been in a psychiatric hospital intuitively knows right away what why this is happening. I am so excited to share this conversation with you today with Rob Wypont. Rob is a freelance investigative journalist who writes frequently about the interfaces between psychiatry, civil rights, community issues, policing, surveillance, privacy, and social change. And he's the author of the book, Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships, which is brilliant. I could have talked to him for hours, so I hope you enjoy. Hi, I'm Jasmine Russell, and this is Depth Work, a holistic mental health podcast. This is a space for those who love to dive into the underbelly, to revel in the mystery, question assumptions about what's normal, play in the both and, and honor the wide range of human emotion. As a complex trauma survivor, holistic counselor, and co-founder of a mental health training institute, I've learned that there is immense wisdom in our pain, and that what we call crazy is just what we are not yet willing to understand and explore. I'm so glad that you're here. So let's dive in. So Rob, welcome to the Depth Work Podcast. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Yeah. So we're going to get into your newest book, Your Consent is Not Required, which is amazing, by the way. I'm so excited to talk more about it in depth and all the research that you did for it. But I would love to start, if you're willing to share just a bit about What brought you into this particular topic around forced treatment in psychiatry and your lived experiences with this work? Well, I've always had a really strong interest in the inner world, the inner psyche. Very young, I kind of was reading unusual novels about inner exploration. Siddhartha by Hermann Hesse was one of my favorite books, you know, all about a you know person whose whole life transforms as he tries to explore what it means to be human and alive. And I was always fascinated by that kind of stuff from a very young age. And so I did get some exposure to to stories, personal stories of people's experiences in psychiatric hospitals at that time. It had a bit of critique of the system in my mind from reading books like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or The Eden Express by Mark Vonnegut, Kurt Vonnegut's son, books like that. So that was kind of in my mind in the back, you know, and then really a big turning point with a couple. One uh, person close to me got very temporarily locked up in a hospital. And that was the first time 
that I really went, wow, you know, both of us were kind of shocked. I knew him well, you know, at the time. So I knew that in my mind, he didn't need to be locked up in a psychiatric hospital. And so, you know, we looked into the laws and that was the first time, you know, I was kind of surprised, like, wow, these are powerful. And again, I sort of forgot about it years past. And then it happened to my father, which is a story I describe in the book where he was going through a difficult time. There's no question about that. And at some point he decided to seek help as we're often told to do at a, at the local hospital. And, and yeah, he was fairly quickly locked up against his will and had really a very humiliating experience and none of the treatments helped and they became increasingly aggressive with their treatments even the less help they seemed to be actually having with him it was very disturbing and distressing and basically over a nine-month period he was in and out of the hospital a number of times and they started to electroshock him against his will and he lost a lot of memory he became quite debilitated and my father was a career college professor of computer engineering with no history of any kind of quote-unquote mental illness or anything like that and so you can imagine that you know, we were all quite aghast. And one of the questions that came to me throughout this process was just, wow, if this can happen to my father, you know, well-to-do white person in a nice country with pretty good health services and family support all around and everybody kind of trying to help him, you know, with what was best for him and, you know, all of that, if this can happen to him, so easily and so quickly, I immediately started to wonder who else is this happening to and what's happening to them. And so that kind of got me started. I, I started making phone calls and reaching out. I started working as a journalist at that time. And, and that's when things really kind of opened up. So you you put a lot of incredible resources and information in this book about forced treatment. And you question really holistically kind of every aspect um, of the psychiatric system and beyond, because all of the oppressive systems are quite interrelated. And I'm just kind of super curious, was it hard for you to get some of this data? You know, I think pharma in particular, but, you know, even places like the NIMH and whatever, like other organizations in and around mental health are quite notorious for only sharing particular information and certainly not the whole story. So was that challenging? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I describe part of it in the book, but that is only part of it. You know, I didn't want to make the book about me and my struggles as a journalist, <laughs> right? but the reality is, yeah, it was really heavy going. And and to be fair, that's true of almost any controversial issue you're going to mm -hmm. write about as a journalist. There's some heavy going somewhere in there, but it's clear that within the issue of, uh, of psychiatry, in particular involuntary psychiatry, this is systemic and intentional, that a lot of this information and data is either not deliberately not collected at all, or if it is collected, it's not readily shared, even with researchers, let alone the broader public. And even when they do have it and it is shared, they still make it hard. <laughs> it's just yeah. like, it's clear that this is a really functional operating part of the system to operate in the darkness a bit. And more and more, as I 
kind of make the argument in the book. My opinion is it's quite intentional. As David Cohen, one of the, my uh, UCLA professor who I interviewed for the book says, you know, he just raises the question of, well, we don't know if it's really intentional or not, but we can certainly say it's part of the functioning of the system. It's part of the way the system works. And that's that's the evidence. My opinion is it, it's quite deliberate in a lot of cases. And I found that right up to major organizations like the Center for Medicare and Medicaid, uh, mm-hmm. to the, the Food and Drug Administration, right down to local institutions. And of course, some of this is hidden behind ordinary privacy laws within healthcare, but it goes far beyond that because I was rarely looking for that. I was usually just looking for the data and the studies and those two are very, very hard to get. Right, right. To back up a lot of psychiatry's big claims, you know, it strikes me what you said. It, it doesn't really matter. There's likely no, you know, at least single evil mastermind behind any of this tugging at the strings. I think that's way too simple of a narrative. Although from what winds up happening on the ground, it, you know, it can often seem like that. But really, that's the way that power is hoarded and consolidated, right? The concealing of information is a really common mechanism of those kinds of power structures. It's a good point. It's a good point that it's not sort of organized and systemic quite in that way. It's not like it's emanating from a central power source, at least to my knowledge. I never found any evidence of that. (laughs) It is much more decentralized and it seems to be just more like a a certain lack of care on the part of governments. Like we don't really care about these people and we don't really care if they're truly getting better or not because our intention is something other than that. And then you'll see that at the institutional level too. Oh, you know, you've told me that you've gotten better. So that's good enough for me. I'm not actually going to get an independent researcher to talk to you a year after this experience when you're feeling a little safer about what you might really say about it. Oh, absolutely. I am super curious. What was some of the most surprising facts that you found? Because, you know, like me, it sounds like you're also someone who kind of comes to this from a place of you already had some of the critique. You already had some of that kind of world knowledge to understand that there's more beyond this traditional narrative. And yet I've even found myself in your book and in some of the other research that I do as well, my mouth is on the floor by like by just how insidious it is and some of the things that you find. So did you have any jaw-dropping moments like that? Like what were the most surprising things to you? Yeah, there were a lot. I think I started the book early on when I was working in a single community and my picture, and this is important, my picture was in the publication, (laughs) meaning that in this relatively small city over time, I got well known enough that people would bump into me on the street and recognize me, just a stranger and go, hey, you're Rob Wypond. Yeah, I saw your article about such and such. Well, let me tell you. And they'd often (laughs) add to this story. And so I did start to get a sense through this process over years, that involuntary psychiatric interventions are much more common than people realize. They Mm -hmm. affect a much wider spectrum of people than many of us realize. And so that was the genesis of the book, really, in my mind, many years ago was, I wonder if this is not only true of the community I'm living in, but true at a national and indeed international level. And so that's what I discovered throughout the book. And then I was finding involuntary psychiatric treatment being used in so many aspects of society, that was just a constant surprise for me. For example, to discover that it was an absolutely systemic 
way of harassing whistleblowers within government and at corporations that everybody kind of knew about this tool and that the legal director for the major nonprofit in America that represents whistleblowers would tell me this and say, oh, yeah, like, sure. And it's been like this for decades, he said. And he directed me to research and he talked about cases and he just said, it's a bread and butter harassment tactic to force a whistleblower into a psychiatric evaluation and potentially into being locked up in a psychiatric hospital. So that was one. Another big one for me, we have no research into this in in Canada, but there is research into it in America. And so I had never really seen the scale and scope of it and to discover that Canadians had flown uh, had been flown over the border into America in massive corruption of healthcare fraud schemes going back again to the 80s and 90s there was a heyday of it but discovering that indeed today not across the border but within America itself that healthcare fraud in this area is rampant and that the Department of Justice, again, was perfectly willing. Indeed, they seemed quite happy to talk with me about it because they were doing so much work in trying to get this under control, that these large corporations have turned it into a systemic business to just round up people and lock them up and bilk Medicare and Medicaid while they're supposedly being treated for a mental illness against their will. And so that was quite surprising to me to discover the extent of that so much so, as I said, that the Department of Justice was totally not hiding this at all, right? So I was very grateful for them to give me a full on the record interview about it. And I was quite, I'd say, impressed and also, you know, aghast at, at the the intensity with which they conveyed to me how serious and widespread a problem this really was. Yeah. Wow. Yes. It particularly struck me too how even people who go into psychiatric systems or, you know, go to a hospital asking for help voluntarily saying, you know, hey, I'm, I'm really kind of afraid. I don't know what to do. That can still be a pathway that people's very basic human rights then get taken away because once you enter into a situation like that, it's it's quite hard, much harder than people would think to get out. Yeah, yeah. And we don't have great data, which is an issue I explore in the book a lot around who's being involuntarily treated. You know, how frequently are they? You know, what's happening to them? What are the demographic breakdowns? We don't have very good data around this anywhere. So we have to deal with that problem. But this is definitely something I think is clearly on the rise, and that is voluntary patients being converted rapidly into involuntary patients. It happened to my dad. I discovered that there are certain states where it's been written very clearly into law in order to streamline and quicken the process where they say, if you're a voluntary patient and you do not agree with the treatment that is recommended to you, we'll make you involuntary. <laughs> like it's simply that. And that is, mm-hmm. in that, it puts the lie to this argument that people who are being involuntarily treated oh, lack insight mm-hmm. when are, are avoiding it. And then when they get it, they're going to be so happy and they're going to thank you. No, <laughs> way more commonly what we're seeing is people who who actually regularly do seek help and they just, they like a particular drug and not that drug, or they would like a non-drug treatment option of some kind and they quickly discover 
discover that that's not readily available at an average psychiatric hospital, and suddenly things are going off the rails. Like I, I've talked to so many people who naively, not know, not you know, can't blame them. I mean, they're lied mm-hmm. to. We're lied to about this kind of stuff all the time. But naively, mm-hmm. they go to a psychiatric hospital seeking help, thinking, "Oh yeah, I'd like a, a therapy. You know, I'd like to mm-hmm. have a counselor. I'd like to." No, you just don't feel get s- that in the psych ward. <laughs> Absolutely not. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so we've got this treadmill now or whatever you call it. It's like a, you know, what's a funneling system of some kind where people are actively seeking help. And then if they disagree at all, put up any kind of resistance, they're quickly converted to involuntary patients. Yeah. Okay. I really kind of made it a point before before speaking to you now to talk about that insight piece because that's that's a really crucial one what gets counted as insight versus not and how that can be used as a tool against people we'll get to that in a second but i also wanted to ask for folks that you know maybe are unfamiliar with this topic of coercive or forced treatment can you describe the multiple layers that all kind of grease this wheel from pharmaceuticals to policies, like what are the pathways that make it possible to take away someone's human rights through forced treatment in psychiatry? Well, essentially it comes down to mental health laws and every state in the United States and every province in Canada has a mental health law on the books, which is largely written up for this purpose. That's They're often fairly lengthy documents, but most of what they're grappling with is when is a patient voluntary versus involuntary and what are the rules and regulations that are going to cover how we handle people who are resistant to this kind. That's really the reason, as a psychiatrist says in my book, it's the raison d'etre. It's the reason that mental health laws exist is to treat people against their will. And so in these laws, they're quite broad. People are often very shocked. We have this notion that you have to be really dangerous and really lacking insight in order to be subject to these laws. But that's not really it at all. And often the laws are quite clear in they broaden out far beyond that. Often this terminology is still there. You have to be a danger to self or others. But that in itself, in these hearings and tribunals that occur, is often quite flexibly interpreted to mean anything from you really are threatening someone to that you could be just not really taking care of yourself in a way that someone else thinks you should be to someone really just speculating around, well, because you're saying weird things, we think somebody might beat you up. That's literally a case that Jim Gottstein uses in his book. He's a great lawyer and a writer of the Cyprexa papers, and he follows a case. He was working on a case where that's it, where basically the argument is endlessly, well, this guy's so weird, he's going to get beaten up. Therefore, he's a danger to himself. Therefore, we have to treat him against his will, right? So it's quite a broad spectrum, and it's gone way beyond that now in the laws. So now there's a grave disability standard, which is just just widely interpreted as just sort of ways in which you may not be taking care of yourself appropriately. But then we have a deterioration standard that's becoming more and more common, which is something along the lines of, well, if it looks like as a result of this quote unquote mental disorder that you seem to have, that you may 
become physically or mentally worse in some way. Your condition may worsen. The deterioration word is used. What does that mean? No one really knows. It's not defined anywhere in law. It's never been to a Supreme Court in any of the countries where it's been instituted. So it's never really been hashed out. And it just kind of gets applied in these broad ways. So essentially, these laws are very, very powerful. They authorize then a doctor to lock you up, to incarcerate you in a locked ward, keep you there. They can restrain you. They can forcibly drug you. Often there might be a sort of second part of the process to authorize forced drugging, depending on where you are. There can be two stages to that, but essentially it's the same law that overrides all this. And it can become very aggressive. There's no length of time often. This can be endlessly renewed. So there... Yeah, I don't know. There's all these different stages. Like there's the emergency intervention, which doesn't require any of this. It's just you're we're worried that you might be in this state. So we're going to lock you up. And in some in some states, that's as much as a month long. So it's a very long period of time before they even get to giving you a hearing before you even get in front of a judge. So, yeah. So these laws are very broad, very powerful. I would compare them to anti-terrorism legislation. It's really the only thing that's similar on the books where. You know, when when you're near a suspected terrorist, they have extraordinary powers to just take away your rights. This is really comparable to that. And the reason it's so powerful is because we're supposedly helping people. So that justifies all of this. So police are allowed to conduct searches. They don't need warrants. They can conduct surveillance. You can be arrested. You can be all these things can happen because we're supposedly trying to help you. So I don't know if that answers your question. I mean, there's such a broad <laughs> yes. spectrum of things, but just to give people a sense of what can happen. And I want to emphasize, you know, we haven't talked about the the personal experience of it. I personally have not experienced it, but the book is full of people's stories of this. And it, it can be anything from a very respectful process where someone goes, look, we're just really worried about you. Have you ever tried these medications? Would you like to try one? Hey, how did that feel? Would you like, people have those kinds of experience often with a few days they're let go and they're like, Hey, that was, that was fine. You know, I actually feel better. That has happened. I think it's rare. We don't have the data, but far more often because it's against people's will and that authority exists, resistance comes into play where someone goes, okay, I don't like that drug. I have tried it and I don't want it, or I don't want any drugs because I'm a health food nut. That would be what I'd be saying in that situation. (laughs) I don't want any of these drugs. But anyway, and, and as soon as that resistance kicks in, this force can become quite aggressive. It can be brutal physically. It can be traumatizing, humiliating for people. And everything spins out of control at that point, you know, depending on what kind of traumas people have been through before, what their own tendencies are, do, you know, their what their behaviors might be when they're feeling threatened in a situation like that. All of this kind of stuff can go off the rails and these experiences can become very, very brutal for people. Absolutely. Absolutely. And really, I think it's, I mean, it's even more complex than this, but that the the mental health laws that make this possible, plus an ever expanding diagnostic net that makes it so that so many people qualify as having some type of mental health condition plus pharmaceutical incentives, financial incentives to create a system that's almost entirely based on medication, whether people want it or not, and very little therapy that happens in these settings, I think just creates at least a trifecta of this just 
becoming more and more commonplace. And what I think folks don't tend to realize, because I, I think sometimes the common pushback against uh, when you're critical around forced treatment is, well, you know, eat okay, even if it's not necessarily helping that person, isn't it helping all the rest of us, you know, become safe from folks who are violent? And you've said this in your book, and there is research on this, that folks who get diagnosed with a mental health condition, even the ones that are considered, you know, quote unquote, serious mental illness, like schizophrenia or bipolar, those folks are far more likely, we are far more likely to be victims of violence rather than perpetrators of violence. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As you say, there's good research showing that consistently over and over again. And then often you are a form of violence is perpetrated on you in the form of this kind of uh, involuntary intervention. But yeah, you raised a number of good and important points there. One of them being that we don't actually have a lot of good scientific evidence that this is helping anyone across the board. So yeah, if we even isolate it, reduce it to the most extreme cases that people often want to talk about, which is some sort of caricaturized picture of a homeless, psychotic, violent kind of person, right? Okay, we need the laws for that guy, right? You know, they'll often say, so sure, Rob, I hear that all sorts of other people are being abused by this, but we need it for that guy. But the problem here is we don't have evidence that we're even helping that guy or that we're helping society in that way. It's very similar to the prison system in that way, right? There's people who ideologically believe in it, but the evidence that this actually is ultimately making society a safer place or that where people are coming out of that saying, oh, I've learned, you know, my lessons and now I'm going to be a better person or whatever, right? Like uh, um, this is just not happening. And it, what I found most shocking, I think, was how little research has ever even been done in this area. And I, I found mostly the research that did exist or the attempt to summarize the research that was out there were done by pro-force psychiatrists. There are some that some critics have weighed in, but when critics wave in, weighed in, like me, we find nothing. So there's almost nothing to criticize, right? <laughs> Except there's nothing there. And so it would usually be pro-force psychiatrists frantically trying to find evidence to buttress their positions and then having to admit in the course of their final results in their paper, gee, as one psychiatrist said, it looks like forced treatment is based more on tradition than on scientific evidence. And that is the reality. So this has been going on for hundreds of years. There's a strong belief out there in society still today that somehow this does some good, but all we really have is evidence that it harms because you can find countless people say that. And, and we have no real form very few formal studies really looking at what are the outcomes? Do people get better or worse or anything like that? Yeah. And I think that's intentional as well. You know, one of the most damning bits of evidence for this, which you cite in your book as well, is that people are more likely to commit suicide in the few weeks following hospitalization for folks who previously had suicidal ideation and for folks who didn't. Exactly. And 
this is good again, because this is the, the best evidence we have is actually not with involuntary patients, because that's been so little studied. Looking at voluntary patients, so that's what these studies are including. Uh, I don't know that they distinguish, so they may have included some involuntary patients as well. But by and large, they're including both or, or strictly voluntary patients. And that's right. We see this evidence that the there's two pieces of this, right? So the studies of psychiatric medications and how they influence voluntary, enthusiastic patients who are joining scientific studies deliberately to try to do new drug, you know, hoping that it's going to improve them. Even there, the level of improvement we're seeing fairly consistently is not very much. It's like a yeah. few points on a 40-point scale or, or six or seven points on a 200-point scale of like, oh, my symptoms were slightly reduced. So that's the best across yeah. the board that we're getting scientifically. But then we look at something in a real world context, like what happens after people are in a psychiatric hospital. And yes, we see suicide rates that go up hundred times for people who had no suicidal ideation before, 200 times higher suicide rates if they actually went in with suicidal feelings. So yeah, based on that evidence, we can only conclude that being put in a psychiatric hospital, whether voluntarily or involuntarily, is an extremely dangerous thing to do to somebody and not advisable. This is consistent in the research. Even suicide researchers know this and we'll talk about it, but then they just kind of dismiss it or they say, well, we don't really know what that means. And it's true. We don't, we can't prove cause and effect here, but anyone who's been in a psychiatric hospital intuitively knows right away why this is happening because they're enormously depressing places. They're often dark and dreary at best, and they can be actually frightening and traumatizing at worst. And not many people go into them and come out going, wow, that was the greatest thing ever. Right. And every step of the way, we're doing something that, in my opinion, is completely counter to healing. We're taking away someone's basic human rights and freedom. We're telling someone that you can't trust yourself. You can only trust us, you know, the authority. We are limiting people's scope or options. We're giving them a narrative that may not be at all accurate or may not be compatible with their worldview or, you know, their their life, not giving them the opportunity to develop their own narrative around what's happening and why they're suffering and where the trauma, you know, is coming from. And we're re-traumatizing them. And, you know, if you're on suicide watch, you have a policeman outside of your door and like, and it just goes on from there. Like every step of the way, we are doing something that is completely counter to what might be supportive for someone's mental health. Yeah. And so many people will tell that story and say that and point that out. And it it shocks me that more psychiatrists and psychologists are not grappling with it and sort of they they should be the ones speaking out against mm -hmm. this because I just can't see how anyone as a responsible mental health professional could possibly do good work in this environment. <laughs> Right. I mean, people are coming in there. They're rapidly the worst, most deepest fears that they may have already had are now being exposed. And yes, like you say, that the sense of disempowerment, the sense of humiliation, the sense of just pure anxiety that can permeate. I don't know how anyone could think or trust that their relationship that they're going to develop with the patient in that environment or what. And almost everyone I interviewed told me that they, at some point started lying 
flat out that they saw that as their main job. This is the only way I'm going to get out of here is if I flat out start lying and saying, thanks so much for these drugs. Oh, I feel so much better. Yeah. And they just did their best to behave as quote unquote normally as they possibly could. And, and as you say, like so many people highlighted, particularly around suicidal ideation, because for a lot of people, suicidal feelings come from a place of feeling powerless. Yeah. They feel like they don't have agency in their life. They don't have an ability to change things. They're feeling overwhelmed by society. And so this is like the worst thing you can do is then go, okay, yeah. And on top of that, we're going to take away your cell phone. We're going to lock you up. We're going to tell you that everything you think is wrong. And we're going to like, you know, just like all these things that make people feel even less empowered in their lives. They're not being nurtured at all. Yeah. You've got a few minutes a day to talk to someone that you actually care about and that cares about you. And like, it just, it's, it's ridiculous. That leads me to the question around insight. And I think you have a whole chapter on your, in your book called the catch 22 of insight, which really I mean, it was really powerful for me because if we talk about the mechanisms through which this kind of authority and power is hoarded, it's really considering any person who is deemed mentally ill as incapable of having rational, you know, quote unquote insight into their life and their mental health and what's best for them. And there's, there's a term for this. I actually don't know how to pronounce it. Is it an anosognosia? Yeah. I think it's anosognosia, I think is what it is. But yeah, we hate the term, right? I do, that's for sure. So we don't want to pronounce it well. We don't want to learn it. We don't want to repeat it too much. But yeah, it's a term that's it was adapted from studies of stroke patients who had brain damage. And somebody just went and, well, we know who it was. It was you know, a couple of psychiatrists, psychologists and psychiatrists that were really pro-force and they loved this idea and they started promoting that, oh yeah, all these mental patients have, an, have like brain injury. They, they don't even understand that they're ill. They don't understand what's happening in the world around them. They're essentially like somebody who, you know, doesn't know, like a patient with severe dementia, they kind of characterize them like this as somebody who doesn't know where they are, who they are, what they are. It's this very extremist approach to kind of understanding what's happening to people in this context and, and very dangerous. Absolutely. And it's used by, by psychiatrists, medical doctors, psychologists, but also I've noticed even uh, family member-led organizations. I won't name names, <laughs> but you know, organizations that were created by family members who who very naturally have the concern, you know, my my son, my daughter, my aunt, my whoever you know, is, was diagnosed with this, but, they, but they're not willing to get help. And like, I just want to help them. I just want to support them in some way, but they don't, you know, they don't see that they're sick or they're causing harm or they're, you know, whatever it might be can use this word and use this concept of this person lacks insight. And when they lack insight, it means that it gives us somehow free reign to then get to decide what counts as insight, but also what we should do with this, with this person and what treatment we need them to get. It's terrifying. Yeah. yeah and it's important to point out that there's no definition 
for it in no. the science anywhere. What constitutes lack of insight? I mean, this is an eternal philosophical problem, right? The the, the greatest thinkers for generations and in society across all cultures have in some way grappled with the question of what does it mean to have fundamental insight into the nature of the human condition and, and to truly live an enlightened life or a good life or, you know, these are really longstanding questions in the human, you know, in the human life and world. And yet here it's been kind of applied in this way. So, oh yeah, it's totally clear exactly what insight is and is not. I'll use the example of my father, like he was labeled in this way as lacking insight. And sure, he said things where I went, okay, that's kind of weird like where as i describe in the book he said at one point oh the roof is caving in well i was sitting in the room with him and you know i looked up and no the roof wasn't caving in so okay this is a person quote unquote exhibiting lack of insight i i guess right because he doesn't seem to know that in fact the roof is not caving in right now at the same time as he was saying that though he wasn't jumping up and running out of the room (laughs) Right. Oh my God. Right. It was just sort of an expression coming from somewhere. Mm-hmm. And he would even put up an argument. I go, no, it's not actually dad. And he'd be like, it is, it is. Right. And stuff. <laughs> and so, you know, what's going on there? Right? There's some deeper psychological thing where he really needed to express his emotions in that way. And it's even to the point might seem real for him. There was another instance where he thought the furnace was going to explode and he really wanted to call the, the fire department, you know? And so that was sort of real. He was taking action. I'm going to call the fire department. So again, you're kind of, okay, something's happening. So I get it. But the point is at the same time as he was doing this, like literally a minute later, you could get him on a different topic. And he was my same old dad, right? He was a very competent college professor of computer engineering, right? If I could distract him for a little while, he could help me with a computer problem. You know what I mean? Like, so, so yes, there's something going on there and I'm not saying it's not important and that it's not relevant, but to say that he as a person fundamentally had no understanding of anything that was happening and, and that therefore anything he had to say about what he wanted or didn't want in terms of help, that all of that is irrelevant. That's extreme, right? Because clearly he was still very much present and aware and smart and insightful and sensitive and all these other things. So I just wanted to kind of share that personal bit, right, of it. And then the way it actually plays out, and I saw this in countless hearings, both in Canada and the United States and numerous jurisdictions, is that it's not defined in any way. All they really do is just say, if you are denying the diagnosis that you've been given, and if you're refusing the drug treatment that they're recommending, this is evidence of lack of insight. These hearings are barely 10, 15, 20 minutes long. They are not trying to decide whether you fundamentally understand the nature of reality or not truly. They just cobble together a few wacky things you said, and they say, this is evidence that you're wacky, and now you're refusing drugs and you're refusing this diagnosis. That proves you lack insight. In actual practical terms, that's what it is. And why I call it a catch-22, as I describe in the book, is because if you do the opposite, if you say, yes, I do recognize I have a mental disorder. Yes, I do recognize that these drugs might help me 
or something like that, all you're doing is indicting yourself now. Because then they say, see, you've admitted it yourself that you're mentally ill. Therefore, we need to treat you. And so you lose, you still lose the power to refuse or to deny anything in this equation. There's only one way out of this usually, and that is acceptance. You have to have a very, very strong case, a very small number. About 19% of cases is the best number we have actually win these hearings. And the vast majority of cases you're going to lose and you're losing the right to refuse. You're in this catch 22 where if you say you're mentally ill, that's evidence that you're mentally ill. And if you deny you're mentally ill, that's evidence you're mentally ill. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. You're absolutely right that the term insight gets reduced to you have to agree with us that you have, you know, X, Y, and Z disorder and need to be put on X, Y, and Z medication. To your point, people have enough insight often to say, I I need help. I need something. It might not be, you know, I might not want a pill. That's not, maybe not what I mean by help. Maybe I need a roof over my head. Maybe I need access to healthy food. Maybe I need something else. You know, there's some other kind of help that I'm looking for to not be socially isolated to, you know, whatever else. But yeah, to your point, help is only seen in one extremely narrow framework where you must give up your personhood, essentially. Yeah, absolutely. And it's such a good point because if you just change the question for these people often like, oh, well, would you like, what's your favorite food? Would you like us to make you a meal? Based yeah. on it, why, you know, where are you living right now? Is it a nice place? Would you like a nicer one? Right. If you just change the question, it's amazing how much help you could offer someone that they're actually willing to accept. And what I also found too is you know, I've personally never talked with anyone who didn't readily say, yeah, I'm really struggling. Yeah, you know, I really was having a difficult time and I really did want help and all that kind of I've never met someone who's fully unless it clearly was fraud, a case of fraud and that does happen. But most of the time, most of you I've talked to have readily admitted that in some ways they were struggling. But often psychiatrists will say to me, no, 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 you got to understand. There are people who totally deny that. Well, I know what's going on now, right? Having research, it is you lie, right? You lie, you absolutely, because you know what the stakes are, right? You're sitting down with the psychiatrist. He says, you're mentally ill, you know, and, and, and you'll go, no. And then they'll say, well, what do you mean? And they'll start pointing things out. Like, you know, you're homeless. And they're like, no, no, I'm not. Right? Because all you're doing then is you're just trying to avoid losing all your rights and powers. <laughs> and you're thinking, you're hoping that maybe if you can deny in any way that you're suffering, that they're going to let you go. Right. And that this is why people kind of get into that tussle with the their psychiatrists where so these psychiatrists come out of it going this person completely lacks insight but if you give that person space and time and comfort and are not threatening them with losing all of their rights if they so much as admit that they're struggling right then often they're quite willing to admit yeah and in fact we've seen we have reports of this happening in some of these major cities where there's bad homelessness problems is it's frequent these people do show up at hospitals and often they're refused because they're simply told, oh, you know, one, we can't really help you, you know, because we know you're homeless and that's your real problem. Another, or you're just looking for a nice place to stay. We know what your game is, buddy. <laughs> right? So a lot of times people who are seeking help at these psychiatricals are being turned away. And that's part of the problem. Yeah, absolutely. In your research, 
what were some of the areas? Because I know you also talked to a bunch of folks on the ground doing some really great, you know, work in alternatives to psychiatric treatment, people like activists, people who are really working hard to change the system from inside and out. Are there areas that you personally feel are spaces of some maybe some little windows of hope? Because I think it's really easy when we go into this topic of forced treatment. I mean, I sometimes do just feel kind of a sense of this big looming thing of, oh, my God, how do we stop this? Like, how? what what are our at least small, you know, entry points into starting to make some changes and chip away at this massive power structure? So personally for you, what were some of the areas where you felt that sense of hope? Well, first I want to say the reason we're getting that sense of overwhelm is because it's real, right? Yeah. These systems are already very powerful. The best data I, I found shows that the rates have been going up and up and up for decades. And we're seeing a massive push right now across North America to expand even further. So it's quite understandable that we're feeling like, you know, a sense yeah. of overwhelm and the whole, wow, what can we do? Because what, what are the actual rates um, in terms of like the increase? So the best data we got from the United States was a, out of a UCLA study that's fairly recent where they found that over about a five-year period, the rate of psychiatric detentions were increasing at three times population growth. And they found data in about half of the country. And even this was only partial data. So I, I think there's a reasonable case to be made that it's far higher than even three times population growth. I found rates going back into the 90s in some jurisdictions where we're seeing a doubling or tripling relative to the overall numbers. And of course, population growth is a factor in there. But again, yeah, the actual per capita rates have gone up and gone up a lot. And yeah, so that's that's the best data we 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 have right now. And it's been fairly consistent. And so it just it's the lie to the narrative that we have far fewer beds and far fewer people are being forcibly treated because that's the dominant narrative out there. And so yeah. what I'm showing is the exact opposite and, and the bed numbers as well. What's happening there is people often just count large state hospitals, public hospitals, and they don't count where all the money is really gone as we close those large asylums, which we did in the 1950s, 60s, 70s. We started closing large asylums, but there was heavy investment in group homes and assisted living and nursing homes and all these other facilities now that do have also specialized psychiatric beds. And so when you add those up, we have more beds per capita than we've ever had in history. And it looks like the rates of detention are higher than they've ever been in history. Now, admittedly, people today are not held for as long. Back in those days in the 50s, you would routinely be locked up in a state hospital, maybe for your whole life. So we're not mm -hmm. seeing that kind of stuff very often anymore, except in criminal cases and things like that. That. So within civil mental health law, people are more often kind of in and out a bit, but even accounting for that, it's just the rates of it overall are very high. So that's that piece of the question. Yeah. Now, right. You were talking about what's making me feel good or what I'm optimistic about. There's, there's a few things. So one of them is the, the big shift that's happened was the passing by the United Nations of the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And they highlighted it was very much a nothing without a, nothing about us without us process so that people who'd been through experiences of involuntary psychiatric treatment had a voice at the table 
In particular, I want to commend Tina Minkowitz, a lawyer and a person who's experienced forced treatment herself, had in that she was really helping spearhead some of that feedback in the process. And yeah, they they managed to get included with all the other people labeled with other types of disabilities under the convention. And that has really helped, I think, contribute to a shift in the dialogue in North America since that time. And the United Nations and the World Health Organization have come out against forced treatment, declaring Mm -hmm. it to be a breach of fundamental human rights under the convention. And more and more groups, different people Uh, from groups that represent people with different kinds of disabilities, as well as groups now working on racial issues, working on other types of civil rights issues. They are getting this, getting the psychiatric rights issue far better than they used to 20 years ago, in my experience. And so that's creating opportunities for new levels of collaboration and understanding. So that's great. The other thing I want to highlight is There's actually no end of research and evidence and pilot projects showing that there are other ways to intervene, even in the most extreme cases of distress, and have success of that. And they've been tested here and around the world, and there's a myriad of them. And what we're up against, unfortunately, is that the medical profession, the psychiatric profession, is continuing to resist. And government is going along with that, where they're continuing to resist really expanding these kinds of programs. And I talk in the book about the history of that and the politics and the money and the profits that are kind of driving that. But it's something that we really need to readily talk about because I got to admit, my book does not go in depth into all the wonderful things we can do because I came away thinking... Yeah, there's an infinite number of things we could be doing, but we're not. And it's largely because there's political resistance to it. And so I I do want to see going back to the convention and this growing political awareness in our society. I want to see more political activism out there where people are educating the broader public and politicians about these alternative approaches and the need for them and pushing back against the political forces that are going in the other direction now. And I will name names. That's the National Alliance on Mental Illness and Treatment Advocacy (laughs) Center. Yeah. And Treatment Advocacy Center. They are two organizations that have pushed forced treatment for decades And they have far more funding than other people, and they're far more savvy about lobbying governments, and they have done this and done it very, very successfully for decades. And I like to highlight it because I think people don't understand how highly politicized mental health treatment is behind the scenes, that this kind of politicking goes on and that there's a real polarization of opinion. But unfortunately, only one side is really getting heard most often in the mainstream media, and that's Treatment Advocacy Center, National Alliance of Mental Illness, and psychiatrists and mental health professionals who are pro-force. And then governments are jumping on board with that that are getting funded by the pharmaceutical industry and so on. So these connections are pretty clear and pretty obvious. And really all it's done is just, we're not hearing that alternative voice. And there are many of them out there, but they don't get funding. They don't get support. They don't get airtime in the media. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for naming that for sure. Because people often find their way to some of those organizations thinking that they're quite neutral, that they're really up to date on the research, that they you know, are... are doing their best to support patients. And, you know, from their point of view, they are, and also are 
creating a lot of harm. And to your point, it's highly, highly politicized. Like who, who started those organizations? Why? What, you know, what's their kind of ideology behind it? I actually had, had to take a training when I was a junior social worker working in the public mental health system with folks in crisis, had to take a NAMI training. And it was the reason that made me start the Institute for the Development of Human Arts with Dr. Peter Stastny, because I got so angry about what we were being taught that the Institute was kind of born from that. Um, But going back to the United Nations, I had the privilege of being part of the, the initial informal conversations with the special rapporteur at the time. I think that was maybe 2017 or so, Donius Perus, a psychiatrist from Lithuania, I believe, was incredible. And just really, I mean, it's a risky thing for any psychiatrist anywhere in the world to kind of come out and say, and to be against forced treatment and more broadly, the biopsychiatric model. And they put out a lot of reports after, you know, looking at so many different countries, because this, of course, has been exported across the globe. I mean, psychiatry has huge reach beyond the U.S. and Canada. And yeah, the United Nations put out reports essentially saying we cannot justify the human rights atrocities that biopsychiatry has committed. The the effects of you know the medication or the treatment is not justifiable. Like the the effects are too low for us to justify any of this behavior. And I think people really don't know that. Yeah, yeah, that the the effects are yeah too minuscule. Any positive effects that come from these medications, and we need to highlight too for people who don't know how how many adverse effects, serious mm-hmm. adverse effects, can result from these drugs, particularly from antipsychotics, which are the most common drug class used in forced treatment. They are in many ways one of the worst, if not the worst, psychotropic out there. And and these side effects can be really serious, permanent, long-term neurological damage, shaking and loss of muscle control, diabetes increases dramatically, weight gain can be massive, like hundreds of pounds in, in orders of months. Sometimes people can gain, like, like literally going from 110 to 300, things like that. Like it's, it's really shocking how powerful these drugs are. So yeah, they, they can be a form of torture really when they're administered long-term to people against their will because it can completely take over their lives. They're sleeping 12, 15 hours a day, you know, having to doze constantly, unable to get motivated because these are such powerful tranquilizers. It, you know, people can literally come to the point. I interview someone in my book who's a former athlete and soldier who gets to the point where she can't get out of bed. She's so struggling from the medication overdose. And now after getting off of all these drugs is back to being able to go in a marathon, you know? So like, it's so vivid and clear and and concerning what's going on there. Yeah. And I wanted to highlight something else that we talked about, but the politics of this too is, is it's often family members that are like, I've never seen, I don't know if you've ever seen a, a peer run, a a group, an organization of any kind that was essentially run or co-run by former psychiatric patients or current ones that was pro-force. You know, (laughs) there's some out there that try to be diplomatic around it and, you know, maybe, but there are none that are out there camping 
campaigning like, yeah, we need more of this and, and all that. It, it, the only organizations that do are the ones that are entirely family run. And so what I want to highlight about that is, is often we just kind of assume it seems in the public that if a family member comes out and says, oh, I really care about my loved one and I just want the best for them. We, we take that at face value. And what I found is it's rarely something you should take at face value, that often these families that are involved with forced treatment have dark, deep, complex histories, often where in some cases you can demonstrably prove that the parents are flat out abusive and they're using forced treatment as another weapon and tool against the child, particularly as the child is becoming adult and is getting some independence. They can use this as a mechanism to continue controlling their lives. And then at the very best, I often found, well, just lots of questions about those relationships because yeah. It, it, just the, the experience of involuntary interventions themselves can drive a family apart. You, they can breach trust and all of that. So, so even if the family didn't have this history of tension before, they almost certainly do after the experience of forced intervention even once. Yeah. And so I want to highlight that for people that when you hear a family member out there promoting forced treatment, you need to ask, is their intention truly what's best for that and make for that person and, and make sure you actually talk to the, the ex-patient or the current patient themselves to say, well, what's your view on this? What do you think of your parents? How is this <laughs> helping you? What would you like? And I find shockingly, it's rarely done in the media. So yeah, I want to highlight yeah. that, you know, and as for anything else positive, you know, I did think of a lot of um, examples of alternative ways we could do this, looking at what other people had done. And one of the ones that I also want to highlight too, is I do think this would be a much simpler discussion and we could solve so many more problems in society if we simply separated out the policing intervention from the brain intervention, because those are two very different things. So I think lots of people can intuitively understand, hey, there's a situation where someone's doing something physically that really is risky for them or for others. And, and there's a understanding that understandably someone wants to intervene physically, even if I want to do that on my friend, you know, and say, please stop. You know, I don't want you to kill yourself in front of me and I'm going to like take your, take your arm and, you know, try to pull that knife away from you, whatever it might be. Right. Mm -hmm. That we, we all, I think can understand those kind of moments. And I had many patients who said that to me. Yeah. Yeah. I understand why the police came. I get that. What I don't get is why then when all I'd really done was run up, down the halls at three in the morning and bother my neighbors, which would bother me too. I get why the police stopped me, but why then was I subjected to these intensive interventions in my, into my brain and these drugs and everything else, unlike a common criminal who doesn't get submitted to that, you know, and, and I think that's it. So I think when we talk about this, that's what I'd really like to do because I think it clarifies the discussion a lot. Let's talk about when we might understand a policing intervention of some kind, a physical control versus one where we're saying, oh, we're going to actually go in there with electrical electrical, you know, impulses and, and shock that person's brain, or we're going to give them a drug that's so debilitating, like what, what's really justifying that, you know? And to me, that's a positive because I think it clarifies the discussion a bit if only we would, if only we would do it more regularly. Absolutely. And, you know, I would even go so far as to separate that out one further where psychiatry lacks scientific evidence for their interventions to your point 
And also there are people who struggle with mental health concerns who do have other chronic health concerns. Things like I talk about this a lot on this podcast, you know, autoimmunity, other neurological issues, things like Lyme or a virus that then, you know, kind of impacts the brain and the body in different ways. But when people get locked up in a psych ward, I've had folks, friends, other advocates who've been locked up, who have said, you know, hey, I have lupus and this is impacting my emotion regulations. This is impacting, you know, how I'm behaving right now. Please, I need to get help for my, you know, lupus. That, that is if they have a diagnosis. Often they don't because people get immediately delegitimized when you get labeled with a psychiatric illness. Then, you know, you don't look into any other physiological health concerns either. And I, I think we both kind of also come from the framework of both psychological, you know, mental health and physiological concerns both have a deep social uh, structural underpinning as well that you know society manifests ill health in a lot of different ways but i just wanted to separate that out even more because you are not going to get help with other elements of you know physical health concerns or neurological health concerns by going to psychiatry you're not going to get that help there either so yeah yeah somebody pointed out to me you know, during the course of my research into that particular phenomena, that there's even a term for it. It's so common. It's called diagnostic overshadowing in mm -hmm. the in the psychiatric literature, and it's widely recognized. And then, indeed, I found entire reports lamenting, you know, the responsible psychiatrists lamenting this state of affairs, where if you have a psychiatric diagnosis, that it will often become the predominant thing that that is gets treated rather than any kind of investigations as to what sort of physical conditions might be influencing it and causing it. And they find that in many studies, they can show demonstrably that huge percentages of the people that end up in an emergency room at a, at a hospital, having some sort of mental emotional symptomology, which can range from anything from extreme anxiety or depression to psychosis to hallucinations, you know, and all of that, that a lot of these can be caused by fairly common and not difficult to diagnose physical conditions that if you address those first, you often get a very different picture of what's happening for this person. And I have cases like it in my book, and I cite major reports that come out from the American Association of Emergency Physicians themselves mm -hmm. saying, hey, this is a real problem and we need to become more systematic in how we actually look for some of these physical conditions. So yeah, I have so much uh, sympathy for anyone who has any kind of chronic condition, particularly, as I'm sure you know, one that is difficult itself to diagnose or pin down what the cause is or whether you have it or not. You know, autoimmune conditions or can some of those can be like that. You know, fibromyalgia, right? There's so many of these kind of conditions that clearly can be pretty debilitating for people sometimes, uh, and yet you know, you get into a situation where if the, you know, it's not as something really simple and easy to diagnose that then it often they'll slap on a psychiatric label and your whole life can go off the rails because you're losing all your rights once they've put on the psychiatric label and declared that you're making it up and that you're resisting getting the treatment that you quote unquote need. Yeah, exactly. And that kind of brings me back. I'd love to come back to the, your father and the story that you tell in the beginning of the book. And I'm curious, you know, now after all of those horrendous psychiatric interventions and forced treatment and coercion and all the trauma that your family went through, 
what is the, for yourself, and I know you can't speak for your father, but as a family, how did you get through that? And what's the narrative that you tell about mental health now? Because, you know, you, not just through your research, but also through the lived experience, have come to such a place of nuance around mental health, really understand so many of the different layers, things that can contribute to someone's mental health. So I'm curious how how you've come to where you are now. I want to address one piece of it first, and that is one of the things we really learned as a family was, I want to say this because I want to give this advice to any any family out there is you need to be a unified voice. So part of the issue happens that if there's disagreement within the family about how to approach the treatment for one of those family members, the doctors often step in and seize control. And so I say to families, if this happens to you, make sure you get together, sort out what your approach is going to be, resolve disagreements there, and try to work as a unified voice, because that's the best way to maintain some sort of influence and control in that kind of situation. So that's just a little learning I took from it that I like to share. Well, yeah, I was kind of curious about, you know, people do talk about this term collective decision-making, especially within families, but I'm curious about the narrative that you, because the the psychiatric narrative about mental health, right, is like, well, my dad had major depressive disorder and he got all these treatments and the treatments didn't work and, you know, that, like that narrative. But what's the narrative that you all have a, as a family now, you know, that really complicates that narrative? Like, how do you think back on that experience now? Yeah, I mean, I think that I really saw that, sure, like there's a way in which in extreme cases, this kind of distress that was going on, and it was very understandable. My father had just undergone a catastrophic surgery that had rendered him impotent and incontinent and mm-hmm. just as he was retiring. So it's very understandable that he was going through some really difficult stuff and that this happens to people, to all of us at some point in our lives, usually, if not repeatedly during the course of our lives. And so I do think there's some place there to understand that in, I guess, some kind of psychological terms, right? To say, hey, there's something going on in this person's mind, which is really different and quite a shift for them and maybe even a shift away from what for them was normal before, how society is currently defining normal and things like that. But I do think, one, taking away anybody's rights under that is is really, really problematic approach. And I think limiting the understanding is very dangerous. So, you know, I found I made far more headway with my father even then when I was with him. And and I see this with other people as well, is is just giving that opportunity for different framings, for different understandings. So we know that historically in other cultures, there's been different kinds of rites of passage that, you know, say a certain culture might have one for young men when they're getting to a certain age. And often that age is the very age that in our culture today is the most common age that young men are most likely to get diagnosed with schizophrenia. And what's going on for them? Often they're really becoming boisterous and outgoing and and self-assertive and a little more aggressive physically. And they want to explore and they want to discover and they want to do things on their own. And they're going off into the wilderness on their own. <laughs> they're trying to, right? These are energies that historically in other times and cultures may have been really valued by a culture, like, you know, a young, strong man ready to do a lot of work, right? 
that could be benefit. Mm-hmm. But we have so distorted our society has changed what's possible for a person with that kind of energy. And also we've distorted how we understand what's happening. And so I just go, that's just one right example of a million that I could have chosen there, right? There, mm-hmm. there are many for whoever, all the genders and all the sexual, you know, all, all the ages, like there are all these kinds of transformative times in our lives. And we just need a more varied way of, of bringing understanding to that equation. For me, I got a lot from those novels I read where people were looking at it in terms of spiritual exploration and inner exploration. That's meant a lot to me. And I definitely think that's what was happening for my dad, that I think he needed a spiritual breakthrough and he needed a social breakthrough. He needed to be able to be more open to the people around him to really process this. And he needed inwardly to go to a new level in his own psyche and that he didn't. It was repressed. It was blocked. It was discouraged. It was labeled as an illness rather than as an opportunity, rather as a transformation, albeit a challenging one and things like that. But I'll give you an example. I didn't describe this in the book, but there was a time when my dad was in the state where I just said, hey, dad, you know, maybe let's move the energy around a bit. Yeah, I had training and theater and dance and music, things like that too. And I said, hey, let's just get up and move the energy around. And so I got him up. He, he, he's never been a very physical kind of person, and so, but I did. I managed to convince him. He got up and he started kind of dancing around the room with me. And it was amazing how it shifted the energy. Now, admittedly, right, not forever, right? Because then he sat back down and kind of began to sink into it and he didn't really embrace it. He didn't really observe and go, hey, that just suddenly shifted some things and I felt better for a couple of minutes, right? Like he needed to learn and absorb that and it would have taken more persistent energy from me or whatever, right? But that's my point. So there's countless things like that that you can try, that you can explore. And and one thing may work for one person for one time and something else for someone else. And, you know, maybe you keep shifting up, but that's fun. That's the human condition, right? It's an expansive, exploratory, rushing river. You know, it's a, you know, the explosion of life that we live within that is out there in society. And I think rather than suppressing and channeling and controlling, we can talk more about opening up to it and embracing it. So that's what I bring to it personally is is a sense that, yeah, this was a lost opportunity. And I think to this day, my dad's still living it down. Mm-hmm. And I, I see that in so many of the cases that that I, I, I see out there and t- people I talk to is I think there's often these crucial points in their life where just a slightly different view on what was happening for them could have really made a difference. A slightly different social milieu, you know, again, I grew up with a bunch of artists that I, I connected with in high school. I was into the arts. I connected with a bunch of people like that. And we just talked about anything and everything. We were looking at crazy art all the time and it inspired us, you know, and, and it, so it opened up our energy. So when we were going through stuff, it was like, man, you're looking really depressed. You should write that down. It's going to be a powerful <laughs> novel, right? That was the encouragement I got from my friend. Oh, let's write a song about how I want to kill myself because my girl broke up with me, you know, like, okay, man, that's right. Wow. It's a great song. Like, so there was this way in which we moved that energy around. Right. And again, like that's just one example, maybe wouldn't work for everyone all the time. But I think if we brought that to bear, 
Mm-hmm. It would help so much. And so to me, that's the problem. Mental health is a problem. I, you know, my next mm-hmm. book is probably, maybe that's what it's going to be called. Mental health is a problem <laughs> because it's, it's a limited frame for understanding what people are going through, right? To call it a disease and then get into all the repression often. No, it's, it, there's so much more going on for people. Well, I would happily read that book because exactly, I think you hit the nail on the head. We need more perspectives, possibilities, you know, a whole menu of ways that we can understand how this fits into our life context. When you are focused or coming from a place of understanding, the way that people are thinking, acting, and behaving starts to make sense in their, not just their life context, in in their whole context and their whole being. And it strikes me about your example with your dad that, you know, you as someone who loves him, who he loves, you know, coming from a place of exploration and understanding is so drastically different than anything that someone gets in the mental health system who's coming at any person, usually not even as a human being, because once you get labeled mentally ill, it, you know, extracts you from your humanity. But then on top of all of that, sees you as something to be fixed, something to be changed, something pathological in nature. And just, yeah. 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 One of the things that disturbs me so much to hear, and you hear it all the time, is someone saying, well, what's the alternative? What else could we do? And I'm often going, okay, have you tried this? Have you tried that? Have you tried this? And they're like, no. Like, and I literally had someone say back to me once, okay, after I've heard you, I realize I never actually tried anything. <laughs> yes, yeah, have exactly. Have you tried asking them? <laughs> have you tried? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Like it's, you know, and this was somebody who was about their own experience, right? They, they grappled mm-hmm. with depression. It was like, oh, I tried everything. And now the only thing that helps me is antidepressants. But they were explicing this because they wanted to get off it, right? They say so they're saying to themselves, now I, I really want to know, but because I tried everything, I have no hope. And I was like, okay. And, and, and then the person and asked me, they kind of, you know, very politely went, you know, have you talked with people who've, because they knew what research I did and that, have you talked with people who've gotten through depression in different ways? And so then I, I listed some of the things that people I knew had tried and done and had worked for them. And yeah, the person was just aghast, you know, and realized, yeah, and said back to me, oh, wow, I realized now that I never actually tried anything with myself, right? With mm-hmm. myself in that sense, she was saying, you know, and that's the tragedy, right? So it's not only our society imposing this, which is what my book is about, focusing on those people but as a society overall we've embraced it and that's part of the problem that's why we feel like we should impose it on others because for us for ourselves often we can envision another way we can and it's so it's so weird that that's happening in the midst of the internet you know the worldwide web which is allowing us exposure to this you know amazing amounts of information about these alternative approaches and history and everything else so in the midst of that somehow there's a narrowing of our own consciousness going on and our attitudes about this kind of stuff that's widespread across society right now and really difficult i just couldn't i wanted to grapple with it. it took me a long time to realize okay that's like probably a 10 volume series of books. <laughs> I just want to focus on the civil rights side of the people who, who know it and are trying to refuse that treatment. Right. And then we got a separate issue. What about the people who don't know it? 
<laughs> and yeah. what, what, how can we re-educate and get people to open up again? But yeah, mm-hmm. I see it as the core issue and it's, it's a tragedy to me, especially with children, which to some mm-hmm. degree I do cover in the book, where children are just being schooled in this very limited way of understanding what's happening for them. And not only that, but the actual you know, anxiety they might experience or depressed feelings, all these understandable feelings that any child or youth will go through, that they're even not being corralled around where it's like, well, if you experience it for more than two weeks, you've got a mental illness, you better see a professional. So we've narrowed it right down to that. Not only are we not giving them options, but the experiences they are having, right? We're, we're redefining them at such a narrow level. So now a kid can, I mean, I would... I went in and out of like depressed feelings for years, I think through high school yeah. and it became part of my, who I was and my art and my mm-hmm. philosophy. And ultimately I think a really positive side of my being, yeah. but yeah, for me at the time it was difficult, but whatever. I mean, a lot of things we do as kids are, are, are dangerous and difficult and all those things, right? Like I just want to reach, I would reach out to myself now and just go, yeah, keep rolling with it, dude. Like you're finding your way. Like, just look for the positives amid the negatives as well because they they that's what life is you know somehow our society's become really blocked up about negative experience which i think mm-hmm. is really problematic it's a you know brave new world kind of thing where oh you know, it's somehow dangerous if you so much experience like a dark feeling and i i want to say i observed that in my dad as well like mm-hmm. i had to use examples with him because he just thought the mere fact that he was having a feeling like he wanted to kill somebody was for him like frightening and terrifying. And I was just like, how did any of the great novels get written? I mean, look at what's on TV any given night. Think of all the people who have to be thinking about murder to write all these murders. I'm not saying that's necessarily a great thing that we have murders on television all the time, but you know, it's obviously part of the human condition to think about it. And you, you don't immediately start to judge yourself to just go, Hey, that thought crossed my mind or that feeling, or suddenly it's just like, well, what does it mean? And where is it going? What's another way of expressing it that does not involve actually killing somebody, you know, and maybe that would be better. And, Oh, it is. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, for folks listening who are unfamiliar with alternatives, I think you're exactly right that we don't have a wide spectrum of even a willingness to be creative with how we think about this because there's so much fear. There's so much fear around like, what if I go crazy? Am I crazy? What if someone I know goes crazy? Do I need to, like, what do we need to do? Let, you know, let's find someone who knows what they're doing. And, and that's a really natural human response. That fear is really natural. And yet I'll say as uh, I'm a psychosis survivor, I experienced altered states for a period of time. And because I had already worked in the mental health system, decided to, and, and thankfully I had the privilege in all kinds of ways to decide not to, you know, be hospitalized, but I found incredibly generative and I'm not the only one who says this, even when you go through something that's considered, you know, a, a true mental health crisis. I mean, really your perception of reality is altered and yes, it, it's true. People will say, but this is dangerous. We have to do something about it. Yes, it absolutely can be dangerous and, and terrifying and it, and it can go wrong, you know, in so many different ways. And also, I've spoken to so many survivors of psychosis and other experiences of mental health crises who have said, and also, 
I needed to go through that experience or, you know, post-traumatic growth. You know, I, I came through it and I am a different person. It's, it's not to say, oh, I'm so glad that that happened. It's not to say I would wish that experience on myself again or anyone else. It's not to invalidate how incredibly challenging those experiences are. And also human beings have experienced crises, you know, mental, emotional crises forever. And how do we as a society want to deal with that? How do we want to deal with that? Are we going to continue to to lock people up, to coerce people into treatment that, that doesn't even have, you know, strong effect rates? Or can we think of other possibilities? And so many of the alternatives that I've also had the privilege of working within, uh, I used to work for the open dialogue approach, which is like a beautiful approach to the first episode psychosis and really brings the person's, you know, family and social context together. You know, it's almost like we think, oh, but that's too simple. What you're just going to, you're just going to talk about it. You're just going to bring that person's social network around them and, and talk about the problem. Like, no, we need to get them help. We need to, you know, and it's like, well, actually, this came out of Finland and Finland like almost entirely eradicated hospitalization for things like schizophrenia and psychosis because they use this. It's, it's become so ingrained in their society that they use this so frequently that people know, okay, here's what we do. When someone's experiencing an altered state of reality, we we kind of bring together their social network, you know, some therapists, we talk about it, we have a discussion, we understand that mental health concerns happen in context, in family, in society. We don't label the person as the one who has the problem. And this stuff works. I mean, it truly works. And we somehow especially in America and in Canada too, just think that somehow that's too simple or we need to be doing something, you know, different, more efficient. Yeah. And I want to, I want to ask you about whether this would have applied in your case too, but one of the reasons I like open dialogue is for that social context, right? Because (laughs) many people pointed out to me in this, I observe this in lots of situations is that, Actually, what they were going through was really not that dangerous. You know, they recognize something's happening in my head right now. You know, at worst, it, you know, maybe they felt a little suicidal or they, you know, were kind of curled up in a ball and unable to move or things like that. But, but by and large, that wasn't the real danger. The danger was society, right? Our society is pretty risky. And, you know, we see this all the time in, in, in the discussion of homelessness. You have to say, well, why is a guy wandering the street, you know, talking to himself really that dangerous? Well, it's dangerous because living on the street is dangerous. It doesn't matter whether you have a psychosis or not. The fact that you could freeze to death or that you can't get clean, you know, or all these things that, that can happen on the street, the violence that you can, can be perpetrated upon you, those things are dangerous. Right. So that's truly what it is way more often than anything the individual is doing. And and so, yeah, I'm wondering if that also applied in your case was you when you said it was a bit dangerous, like was it truly for what you were experiencing or was it in the social context you were in? Yeah, for sure. It was I mean, the the thing that I think is, uh, at least in my case, that would have been dangerous about these altered states is that, you know, obviously I, I really didn't have quite a conception of where I was at spatially. I, I was really scared. And so I would try to run away and, and like, you know, if you're running away in in the streets of Brooklyn and then, you know, the, the danger really there is that 
people, police, you know, whoever else finds you is not going to have an awareness of what's happening to you. And, and the danger there for me is, yeah, I might wind up in a situation that I don't want to be in either, you know, with, with a stranger or, you know, being <laughs> for me, I think the ultimate quote unquote danger would have been forced hospitalization, which is something that I really didn't want. But when I was allowed to and had wonderful kind of peers around me supporting me during that process, when I was allowed to go through the experience, again, through privilege in so many different ways, it moved through me. And I never experienced something like that again. And I sometimes when we talk about the danger of madness, I know this is quite controversial to say, but I wonder sometimes if it is at least equally as dangerous to not allow people to go mad in a society. Yeah, very good point. And the danger of, and on top of that, yeah, explicitly suppressing and controlling it and whether that creates some weird kind of chronic, you know, blockage for that person. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, that's what I think. I, I see it a lot. I mean, I don't know. I think there are other factors that may come into play with certain kinds of people who have like such a deep uh, trauma from childhood. Maybe they did actually get physically or brain injured in some of those abusive experiences they had as a child. And so maybe there, there's some ongoing uh, issues of some kind for them that they're going to have regardless. So, And maybe that's a whole different category. But definitely, we know so much evidence for this that a huge percentage of people, maybe the majority that get involuntarily treated, it's episodic. And that if you can just really meet that initial upsurge of that energy and provide it space, allow it to flow through, that there's some period of time and it, it could be days for some people, hours for some people. For others, Mm -hmm. it can be weeks or months, but there's some sort of time limit often on the precedent. It seems to naturally resolve itself and the person finds their way back to where they want to be, a more comfortable zone where they Mm -hmm. can function and and, and operate. When you treat it empathically early on, right? Because yeah, yeah, to your point about chronic, I think there are a lot of things that could make a mental health concern become chronic. There are physiological reasons, developmental trauma, reasons for sure. But the ones that I've seen most often is it becomes chronic because someone gets caught up in the system and is going in and out of mental institutions. Yeah, that's what I've seen too, that that once you're on like an antipsychotic for five, 10 years, it hasn't cured your problem. And there's really no one that suggests it could. It's all about just managing it, even from the pro-force standpoint. So they're just, and that person often gets kind of stuck there and they can't, they can neither process that energy nor learn to function with it, nor learn and and start to adapt to become more functional on the drug. Like all these things seem to get kind of cramped. And yeah, I, I see that a lot too. It seems we have Robert Whitaker's book, Anatomy of Epidemic epidemic that looks at the long-term research into the effect of these drugs that suggests that. And certainly we see tons of evidence for it, that it creates chronic debilitation in people. And it's really tragic. And that's why I'm so really against children being put on these drugs when their brains are still developing, like what chances do they have? So yeah, I, I think that that empathy, that support, that opportunity, as I said, for me, I, I never can't, 
became really that I was close at a few points where I had the police interacting with me and stuff, but in my teenage years, but yeah, I kept finding ways to channel that energy and understanding my own experience as opportunity and just having that frame and some level of support around, right? Where, yeah, I wasn't like, you know, you know, a black kid in a highly racist neighborhood, you know what I mean? Where I probably would have been more targeted. So I was in the kind of social circumstances overall that allowed me a certain degree of freedom and privilege. I like to say good fortune in that sense, because I wish everyone could have it. It's not the kind mm -hmm. of, not, not like a negative privilege where you're taking away someone else's power, but rather it was the kind of situation where those who interacted with me just, you know, were nice to me. And I think everybody deserves that, you know, that shouldn't be called a privilege. And I, that's good fortune. Mm -hmm. I had that. And even the police, when they interacted with me, were respectful, you know, they were truly caring and they went away, essentially. They went away in that space. And how many people have that happen, right? And so that's mm -hmm. great that they did. And I had some good fortune that allowed that to happen, but everybody should have it. It shouldn't be something that we call a privilege, right? Everybody should be supported and nurtured when they're in these kind of really heightened, troubled states. And it's treated as something that, hey, this is either coming up for you because there's something maybe difficult from your past that needs to come up for you and you can process it. Or, hey, this is actually a breakthrough opportunity where you're going to learn something, you're going to grow, you're going to change. And it might be really painful now, but it's part of human life. And how do, yeah, what, what are some frames of reference that might help you? One of the things Stan Groff discovered, he's the psychedelic researcher that really believes in this, right? That a lot of these non-ordinary state, non-ordinary states are, have transformative potential. One of the things he found in his research that people often projected at some point an image of the most common sort of religious figure that resonated with them, you know? <laughs> so if they had any kind of training in, in Buddhism, they would sort of see the Buddha in a moment of like hope and possibility and breakthrough. If they believed in Christianity, they would often see Jesus reaching out and holding a hand and saying, it's going to be okay. You're going to get through this, you know? And the people often predict, I think that's a great example, right? And so it doesn't have to be only religious. It can be other things, just that sense. And so many people who've been through trauma have told me that too. You know, I say, how did you get through this? How are you this amazing person today when you were so abused as a child? And they'll often say, well, you know, there was my grandfather, there was an uncle, there was somebody in their life who just treated them nicely and with respect. And it gave them this window, right, into a world beyond where they went, yeah, I was living in this horror, but I could see, hey, there's someone that my hand touches semi-regularly that makes me go, hey, there are nice people out there. And, and that's the way I could be as a person still too. Like I don't have to get all completely caught up in, in all the pain and fear and anger that's overwhelming me right now that's being thrust upon me. And, I, and that, that's a great symbol to me. You know, I found that very inspiring. It often, it really was often just one person, you know, that, yeah. that was that touchstone for them in their lives. Yeah. Absolutely. The power of that compassion and empathy. Well, thank you for all the good work that you continue to do. Tell us a bit about where folks can find you and your book. Well, yep. The book's called Your Consent is Not Required, The Rise in Psychiatric Detentions, Forced Treatment, and Abusive Guardianships. And it's available everywhere where books are sold. You can order it through your local bookstore or get it online. It's also out in an Audible book, and there's a Kindle version as well and an EPUB version. 
yeah, and they can find me on my website, robwipon.com. And there you can also find the references for the book. Uh, that's freely available uh, on my site where there's a page about the book. And I'm on Twitter fairly actively, it seems. So if you're on social media, that's the place that I tend to be most active, where there seems to be most interaction occurring around these kinds of issues for me. But I'm also on Facebook and YouTube, have some videos up if people want to see those. So yeah, that's kind of, and you can contact me through my website at any time. There's a contact page there. Beautiful. I will have all of that linked down below in the episode description. So thank you so much. This was such a rich conversation. Well, thank you. I really appreciated it as well. It was great to explore these with you. I am so grateful to you for being here. If you love this discussion and you're interested in mental health activism and transformative mental health, I highly recommend checking out the Institute for the Development of Human Arts. That's idha-nyc.org. At this point, we have members and faculty from all around the world. We have online courses, events, and opportunities for movement building. So if you're not yet a member, you can sign up for that in the link below. Also, if you're looking for mental health curriculum that's going to expose you to perspectives and approaches that you will not find in any other mainstream education setting, then you have to check out the Transformative Mental Health Core Curriculum at IDA. It's for anyone who's unsure of where to begin when it comes to unpacking the challenges of our modern mental health system so that you can make changes in whichever field you work in. It's self-guided, it's online, it's available to everyone. There's over 40 incredible faculty and leaders who have been in this field for decades. And we also have accessible pricing. So I'll put that in the link below as well. We are now open for enrollment. As always, I love hearing what you think. So please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts and I will see you next time.